You're listening to a press conference from the Harvard T.H. Chan School of Public Health with Rebecca Weintraub, Director of Vaccine Delivery at Ariadne Labs. This call was recorded at 11 a.m. Eastern Time on Thursday, December 9th. Dr. Weintraub, do you have any opening remarks for us? Um, sure. Please just start us off. And thank you, Nicole, for inviting me. And hello, everyone. Thanks for joining. Eager to have a dialogue today. Um, I thought I would just start with kind of a few major bullets. First, um, just front and center that we need a combination of risk mitigation strategies at this stage of the pandemic. Vaccines have never been a silver bullet in the midst of the pandemic, and it's the combination of reducing your risk with masking, ventilation, access to testing, and vaccination when possible. The second message which I think we want to ensure everyone reinforces is that we still have 75 million Americans that remain unvaccinated. And 43% of the counties in the United States have less than 50% of those eligible vaccinated at this time. In addition, 94 million Americans are eligible for a booster and have not received one as of today. Well, I'll spend just a few moments maybe talking through kind of the data that came out yesterday, the preliminary lab results um, that Pfizer introduced, and a few comments about why I'm worried about kids in the midst of the pandemic. So if we think about the fact that we know that Omicron, the Omicron variant harbors 30 mutations on its spike protein, which is the primary target of most of the COVID-19 vaccines that we have on the market. What we've learned yesterday with this preliminary data and other scientists have um, reminded us is that it's likely Omicron is dodging some of the antibodies that the vaccines produce and the variants that may come. But the good news is that the Omicron variant isn't stealth enough to elude all of the antibodies that we have produced regarding those who are vaccinated. So yes, we still need to await the data although you know, many of us are reviewing what the scientists are, are putting out. And it looks like um, there's a, a decent degree of vaccine-induced protection, especially against severe disease. So while we're hopeful there's more that we need to wait for and will likely be weeks um, to come for, to full fruition. Um, the other piece I just wanted to um, reinforce is that this was a press release from Pfizer yesterday pointing to the possibility um, and the positive news that the booster helps coax and cushion the Omicron blow uh, for, for some time. But remember, once again, this is a press release from Pfizer itself. So we're still waiting for these to be published in scientific journals to be, go through the peer review process and to remind ourselves that this is the beginning of a long and complicated conversation about this variant and future variants and vaccine efficacy. Um, but, you know, I think in many ways, acknowledging that this is too early to come to some consensus, we know it's likely this variant will chip away at some aspect of vaccine effectiveness. We also know that our immune systems are complex. So in the real world, it will look different than in the studies. And right now we have to say and remind the unvaccinated that Omicron is unfortunately increasing their risk. And so the risk landscape for the unvaccinated is now more worrisome with both the Delta and Omicron variants in circulation. And that's not because actually vac the vaccines themselves have changed 
or that our immunity and the mechanisms of our immunity have actually changed, but it's because we've allowed the virus to circulate amongst the unvaccinated. The second point I just wanted to remind us is where we are with respect to the pediatric vaccine rollout in the United States. So if you remember, we had an initial, but very short period of high demand where the rate of COVID-19 vaccination for children age five to 11 has now slowed considerably. So demand peaked around two weeks after the authorization. And as of December 5th, unfortunately only have 16.7% of five to 11 year olds have received the first dose of the COVID-19 vaccine. So that's about 4.8 million of the 28 million children in this age group. And only 4.3% have been fully vaccinated. What's worrisome is that this variation is significant across the country. So we have rates of even less than that at 4%, for example, in a state like West Virginia, and we're in the double digits, for example, in states like Vermont. And I mentioned that because, you know, we are concerned about this holiday time period, the notion that we know families will congregate um, and the message will need to continuously be that the risk landscape has changed and that it is the combination of utilizing testing, improving your ventilation, masking, especially when you'll be with folks that are unvaccinated and vaccinated, and obviously those who have not been fully vaccinated, um, encouraging them to receive both the booster or begin their series. So I will stop there, but just wanted to share those early comments. Um, I'm eager to have a dialogue with you all. Thank you, Dr. Weintraub. Um, real question, quick question. This is just a little bit of context. For Pfizer with their press releases in the past, have you seen them kind of bear out in, in accuracy compared to what the later findings indicate, or is it kind of a little, how much, how big of a grain of salt should we take those press releases, I guess is what I'm asking. That, that's a great question. I've not done that comparison <laughs> um, myself, but please look into that and circle back. Okay, that's just for me. So um, no need to do it for me, but if somebody else actually would like to know, let me know and I'll pass that off to Dr. Weintraub. All right, uh, first question. Thank you, Nicole, and uh, thank you, Dr. Weintraub. I wanted to ask you about the potential public health risks of the at-home testing, the rapid testing, um, in that if we get positive results, it's uh, unlikely that state and local health authorities will ever know if they have those results. And obviously that has implications for contact tracing. And then also the government is pushing for more use of these at-home tests. And given that they are less sensitive than the PCR on balance, is this wise? Well, first, that is a, a great question. I'm going to defer. We have some experts within the Harvard School of Public Health who can answer um, that more fully. I'll share uh, from the public health side is first we know um, that, and looking at kind of the community level data as well as state level data, Many families are eager to incorporate a test alongside how they're planning ventilation, masking, and receiving a booster. So I think um, the communication has been quite clear. This is an additional tool in our arsenal to mitigate your risk. Um, and you're absolutely right. It is a different mechanism how we're distributing a test, for example, to a family than it is in other countries. So if you think about how this is being done in Germany, for example, you can receive it on their street. Um, they're free at many public access points. And to utilize the test as a public health means to understand risk um, and surveillance, that's been well proven in other settings. 
the question will kind of become, will we make this as available at no cost so that families and those that are concerned are getting the test and then um, both reporting into maybe their school systems as well as their public health authorities. Um, the second is that there's been um, a significant amount of community messaging about a second test, so testing twice um, and improving the sensitivity and specificity of the test. I'll have Nicole kind of follow up with others within our school who are experts in this realm. Just get in touch with me. Um, <laughs> all right, uh, next question. There okay. we go. Hi, thank you. Thanks, Nicole, and thank you, Dr. Weintraub. My question is about the um, the AstraZeneca monoclonal that was authorized yesterday. And one question I wondered is whether this might there there might be some interest or utility in using it as a a quasi vaccine as well, meaning um, for people, it's it's being intended for people who are immunocompromised and can't take the vaccine. But if it has these preventive and protective properties, could is it possible that people who might be hesitant they hear about the word vaccine and they don't won't take that? Is there might there be some utility in making this monoclonal antibody available to them as a kind of vaccine? Excellent question. I'm going to actually also ask Nicole to refer you to experts um, in, our, in our realm. I'll, you know, th that would be a very much an off-label use at this stage. Second, I'll just kind of counter that with um, this is a moment where we want to improve the confidence of the general public in the safety and efficacy of this, these vaccines. These vaccines have been now distributed and um, injected into billions of people. And we have a very robust safety data set. Um, so I, I would first kind of counter that to say, I think our job right now is to help people understand that these are safe and effective vaccines. They protect you and your loved ones. And um, we appreciate that there are therapeutics that have been approved on the market to help those um, who may have had breakthrough infections or have not been vaccinated. Um, we'll, we'll leave it as there. Thank you for your question. Thank you. Great. Uh, next question. Hi, um, thank you guys for uh, doing this. I really appreciate it. Um, with my question, some anti-vaccine activists um, have been claiming that the COVID-19 vaccine uh, very broadly is the deadliest vaccine ever made. And how do how do the COVID, va COVID vaccines measure up to other vaccines in history in terms of safety? And can we even compare supposed deaths to a current vaccine to one you know many, many decades ago? Thank you for that question. Um, so um, almost March of 2020, I spoke about the need to have billions of doses of a vaccine considering the swift nature of a respiratory virus leading to a global pandemic. And first I want to just take a step back once again that this has been an incredible scientific accomplishment to have multiple vaccines on the market approved, being manufactured, billions of doses now distributed, um, there's much more work to do and vaccine inequity is a massive uh, complex problem that we can solve. And we also have the data that billions of individuals have received first, a second and a third dose. So um, yes, I think we can say this is a safe and effective vaccine. It prevents death, it prevents severe disease, 
it decreases transmission. We also know that those that are vaccinated from a small but interesting cohort, NBA players and staff, that those that have been vaccinated clear the infection. If they are infected, even when vaccinated, so if they received a breakthrough infection, they clear the virus faster. So yes, we are at this stage, we are confident that we have a robust database to say that these vaccines are safe and effective, as safe and as effective as other routine vaccines. And I'm putting a link to that, that paper, which I happen to know very well. Uh, Dr. Uh, Stephen Kessler and Dr. Jonathan Krad were both authors on that one. So I'm going to be putting a link to that Nijin paper in the. Thank you so much. And I also want to say a little plug out there. It also got to kids, which is pretty amazing for a vaccine to get to kids that quickly too. So I'm excited about that. <laughs> um, next question. Hello, nice to talk to you again. Um, I have a couple of questions. Um, one is a lot of readers are, met, are asking us today about the Moderna vaccine. They saw the data from Pfizer and wanna know about, about their vaccine and just wondered, I guess, first what you think uh, are, are they likely to be exactly the same, very similar? What's your take on that? That's a great question and we'll have to wait. We are, many patients are asking both this question. Thank you for representing our patients who've received Moderna, our patients who've received um, a Moderna booster. Um, so we'll, we'll have to wait um, and there'll be a bit of time. So we appreciate everyone's patience in the, in the interim. Yeah, that's what I told the editors too, but uh, apparently it's trending. Um, and then I, I'm, I'm working on a story about um, sort of the future of, of vaccines, what we can hope. So much has happened in the last two years. Looking forward, what, what do you expect um, to change or to be, you know, if we were having this conversation a year from now, how would vaccines be different uh, or the vaccination strategy be different, do you think? Mm. Wow, that's a, a great question. And um, <clears throat> So, I mean, first I have to say, I think in the midst of each pandemic, um, we upgrade and create advantages to the public health infrastructure um, that weren't there before. So after the HIV pandemic, if you remember, we actually began to understand safety and blood banking, something not directly related, but correlated um, with trying to decrease risk for the general population. After the Ebola uh, outbreaks, one of the new bilateral institutions that got established was CEPI um, so that there would be a, an additional funding mechanism for the discovery and to ensure that there's a portfolio of vaccines ready for the next pandemic. And I think we'll see something, something quite similar that there's just been such an incredible cooperation in the scientific community, our immunologists, our epidemiologists, the sharing of data sets, obviously the genomic sequencing that we saw with the courageous and, and robust effort from our colleagues in South Africa to sequence the Omicron variant so quickly. So I think number one, we're gonna see a speed and a level of cooperation that we haven't before. Um, and obviously, as we've all learned and experienced the mRNA platform being one and an additional arsenal to our toolkit um, so that we can in sense reproduce and then iterate on a vaccine if necessary. The second, I think, which is incredibly encouraging is the work that's being done to establish infomediaries regarding the raw materials needed to produce the vaccines. And third, to establish regional manufacturing capabilities um, so that they are well distributed across the globe. 
um, that allows and decreases the transportation requirements and adds technical capacity in areas of the world where there was limited or almost no manufacturing capacity for vaccinations. Great, that's super helpful. Um, and I guess if I can be greedy since I don't see any other, oh, what? Oh, I, I could share what I think sure. it needs to happen in the US that has not. <laughs> so, you know, one of the incredible um, effects of the decentralization of public health in the United States is that our 64 jurisdictions, so every public health authority has a different data infrastructure for the flow of the data regarding identification of those who've been vaccinated, verifying they've completed their series, for example, and that data eventually has ended up in the CDC immunization data lake. But the quality of that data and the stops and starts of that data, um, we have certain jurisdictions that had almost no digital interface at this time, has really hampered our ability to monitor not only the speed, but the equity of its distribution. And as a country, we distribute many other products across the nation in an efficient manner so that we can, in a sense, understand the flow of the product and the information can help with its monitoring. And this is uh, an issue that we have the software to do. We, we need to upgrade and invest in this. In the same time, I have to say we're incredibly concerned because 40% of our public health authorities are missing leaders today. They've, been they've chosen to retire, some have been fired or removed from their um, offices. And we need to invest in this next generation of public health leaders to serve within state and city offices. Great, super helpful, thank you. Uh, does anybody else have any questions out there? I can ask another one. <laughs> Go for it. <laughs> oh, sorry. Uh, you talk a little bit about boosters as a public health measure, what we expect. I mean, we've seen that that the vaccines don't necessarily prevent all infection. Can, can it help if everybody gets boosted to stop infection? And, and what role do you see boosters playing at, as a public health measure? That's a wonderful question. Obviously, we're waiting for some of the science to come through, through regarding um, the third dose. What is clear uh, -er is that it helps establish um, the individual's immunity and obviously population immunity because it enables the vaccinated individual to clear the infection faster, as Nicole mentioned, the New England Journal um, research letter that Jonathan Grad and, and Stephen Kessler um, published. So, you know, in many ways, we're, this is not unsurprising historically. Um, we do have boosters for other vaccinations. If you think about the shingles vaccine, many vaccines are a series of vaccines. So um, I would say we'll be see, seeing this as part of your routine vaccination. Um, and in what we see in the market and developing in the market are actually combination vaccines. So it may be in the future, you'll receive your flu and a booster for COVID, for example, together. And I think that is when uh, the integration of this, where you're thinking this is part of your preventative health, this will be part of employee campaigns um, for back to work, um, will help reestablish um, this as part of your general preventive health versus, um, I have to say, that this particular vaccine has become so politicized. So our actual hope is that this is, becomes part of your scheduled vaccination schedule 
um, allowing patients and providers to have that conversation, improve confidence, um, and um, we hope improve uptake across the nation. Thanks. Uh, any other questions out I guess, there? Uh, yes, I'll just mention, um, you know, one of the, I think a, a wonderful leadership moment that happened this week um, was in New York City, um, where they expanded the vaccine mandate across the city. So as you know, vaccinations are, are required at hospitals for nursing home workers and city employees, so teachers, police and firefighters. And the mayor also announced a series of new requirements. Um, one was an order that five to 11 year old children get vaccinated to participate in extracurricular activities such as sports or band or orchestra. Um, and the requirement for the initial dose will take effect on December 14th. And I mentioned that because we do have this short interval um, as the holidays are coming upon us, we'll have multi-generational households together. Um, and in order for that first dose to take effect before the holiday time period, we have about 300 hours. And so I would recommend that we have all sites open 24 hours, seven days a week in the next 300 hours to get as many people boosted or receive their first dose. And what is concerning, um, which I know many of you are reporting on and we've seen across the country is that people are waiting for their appointment to get boosted. And I would recommend this is a time we need to be full court press, all doors open, and the vaccine be available at every site. Uh, there aren't any other questions out there right now. I have a question for you, Dr. Weintraub. So everybody's been talking about what should we do during holiday gatherings? How should we prepare? My question is what do we do after the holiday gatherings? If, if you aren't sure about people's vaccine status or, um, their COVID status, if testing isn't, uh, rapid testing isn't taking place, what are your recommendations for after the holidays for folks? Mm. That, is a, that is a great question, Nicole. And I know many school systems are trying to think through, um, you know, when and how to ask families where they've traveled to, for example, testing on return. Um, and that would be ideal. And I think this question that's come up many times in different conferences <laughs> regarding the role of testing. Um, many schools will be asking families and children to test before the return to school um, and to bring verification of the doses that they have received um, as school has returned. The second is if you'll be in mixed company with those who are vaccinated or unvaccinated to be wearing a mask indoors while traveling, for example, um, to help decrease the risks to yourself and to others. Um, and during the winter months, while we know ventilation is difficult to spend time outside as much as possible. So it's a great time to go ice skating and have your hot chocolate outside. Um, and in many ways, we're asking folks to, you know, practice and calculate their risks as individuals, as family members, and then be conscious that they'll be returning to congregate settings, maybe schools or places of worship. Um, and if they're feeling unwell, um, um, to refrain from congregating um, with large groups after the holiday time period. Thank you. Uh, any other questions out there? Quiet group. Okay, I'll, I'll go with one more. Why oh, not? Great. <laughs> <laughs> um, a colleague is working on Australia about kind of looking back at, at how people felt when the vaccines were first approved. Do you have any memories of that day, of that moment, when or when you when you got your shot, or when you knew that they were 
uh, going to be available? Oh, yes, you're making me teary eyed. <laughs> um, yes, I mean, I think um, I, I had the privilege of vaccinating some of the first members of our intensive care unit at the Brigham, Brigham Women's Hospital. Um, nurses and physicians and respiratory therapists who've been working night shift after night shift, taking significant risk um, in their own exposure and um, their own experience of caring for so many of our um, long-standing patients who've been in the intensive care unit. So number one, it was an absolute privilege as a provider to be able to offer that immunity to my colleagues um, as a vaccinator um, in December. Um, of, wow, that, you're right, that was a year ago. I think the other piece that um, is striking and many of us keep reflecting on is the story of an immigrant um, and a female scientist who worked so hard to bring to bear the science behind mRNA vaccine um, and where she received support, where she faced skepticism um, and what it takes to break in and establish new discovery, the significant, obviously R&D, investment that was made by the NIH and members and leadership within the NIH to make this happen. And now our responsibility to deliver this with speed and equity globally. And we very much hope this becomes kind of the mantra head that it is the, un the global unvaccinated that we need to protect, um, that will decrease the variants, that will ensure your vaccine is effective, your family is protected, the community is effective, um, and the pandemic will disrupt fewer aspects and dimensions of our daily lives. Thanks, sorry to make you cry. <laughs> oh, no, it's a bit happy. I mean, you know, uh, I had the, had the privilege of being in conversation with a producer at Netflix where, and we created this series called Coronavirus um, in February of 2020. And when I said that we'll need billions of doses of the vaccine, you know, that the producer, stop short. And I think it's that mentality. We are a member of a global community of billions of people who need to be vaccinated. Um, and we can produce this vaccine. We can produce billions of doses. We can distribute billions of doses. It is now kind of our responsibility to use all the technology we have and the wherewithal to ensure the unvaccinated are protected. All right, um, <laughs> any other questions out there? I'll, I'll oh, just share. I'll just share, Nicole. We do update yeah. the vaccine equity planner every week. So, um, vaccineplanner.org. We take all the active sites across the United States that have procured inventory. We then calculate a polygon regarding your time to travel to each active vaccination site, and then display the vaccine deserts. We've modified it. It's helpful for you to understand the pediatric vaccination desert. So. Of all the active sites across the United States, only 40% of them can vaccinate a child five to 11 years old. So families are facing time scarcity. We're asking them to travel a longer distance to ensure that their child is being vaccinated. We're seeing many pediatricians choose to provide the COVID-19 vaccination, but at limited time hours. And we believe this is a moment where convenience needs to be top of mind. Um, this vaccine needs to be made available on your way to work, on your way to drop off, <laughs> on your way to the supermarket, um, seven days a week, and if possible, you know, nights and weekends. So um, please answer any questions if folks want to review the vaccineplanner.org. 
um, and help you drill down to a county, for example, um, at the county level, if of interest. Um, from personal experience, I know that there was a shortage of um, vaccines for pediatric vaccines. Uh, a couple weeks ago, uh, we had an appointment at Walgreens and basically they canceled all the Walgreens appointments. Do you know, uh, because they didn't have the vaccines for the kids, do you know if there are any other distribution hiccups like that? Or does it seem like things like that have gotten kind of smoothed out? Yes, no, unfortunately we've heard of families going in their, uh, families going to specific sites and they're not being a vaccinator that is trained and skilled to vaccinate children, for example. We know that the retail pharmacy, Walgreens, CVS, Walmart have fewer sites where the vaccine for five to 11 year olds is available due to the constraint of actually not having sufficient vaccinators, um, as well as um, securing the retail space required for the level of observation um, 15 minutes after the dose. So we are concerned that um, we've not built this out um, so that this is convenient for families to bring their elder to get a booster, their child, for example, to get their second dose. Um, and we were excited and thrilled to see the president announce family clinics. Um, we have written about that. Um, John Brownstein and I have um, done a bit of an analysis, which we published with ABC News. Um, but we are not seeing that be standard practice across the country. There are wonderful examples folks are reporting on, but they are very few and scattered throughout the country. Thank you. This concludes the December 9th press conference.